This is Saster's Founders Favorite Series, where you can hear some of the best of the best from Saster speakers. This is where the cloud meets. Simplify your cloud infrastructure with Linode's Linux virtual machines and robust set of tools to develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and easier. Find ways to cut costs using the total cost of ownership calculator and compare against AWS's pricing. Visit linode.com saster to learn more. Up today, Five Insights for Consumerization of the Enterprise with Scott Belsky, Chief Product Officer and Executive Vice President at Adobe Creative Cloud. So this is a fun topic. I mean, I, you know, my background was building networks um, and uh, built a company called Behance back uh, you know, 10 plus years ago, uh, or 15, about 15 years ago, that ultimately was acquired by Adobe and have since uh, you know, been at Adobe, but also been thinking a lot about both consumer and enterprise technology and the shifts on both sides of the spectrum and challenge myself uh, this morning to share some of the thoughts around the consumerization of enterprise experiences. You know, this is something that I find super interesting and um, I just wanted to kind of start a discussion. And uh, I started with uh, trying to find five insights and uh, started with 10 and then whittled it down to actually three that I think are uh, interesting and you know worthy of discussion are driving a lot of the, um, first of all, the changes I make during my day job, building and optimizing products and experiences for, for uh, customers within the enterprise. Um, many of our customers at Adobe are enterprise customers, as well as uh, as an investor with my angel hat on, observing just some of the trends of the enterprise uh, companies I'm most excited about. So, and I think that the first two insights are kind of just build up to the, the third that I'll go a little deeper in and hopefully leave you all with a few um, practical things you can think about as you are uh, building great, great products for the enterprise. And I think I'll just start with, um, you know, something that is obvious, but poorly practiced pretty broadly. Um, and that is, you know, the, this notion of simpler interfaces being disruptive interfaces. Um, and of course, this is true for the consumer and the enterprise. I, I like to describe the product lifecycle of all of you know, technology quite simply, that users flock to a simple product. You know, they're encumbered with this kind of burdensome, frustrating way of doing something and a new product, a new shiny object pops up around the corner that's inherently because it's so new, it is simple. And so users flock to it. That product then takes all of its new users for granted it starts to think about better monetization and satisfying power users and therefore adds tons of new features and bells and whistles and uh, ways of customizing. And, and then of course that product becomes bloated and it becomes more difficult to use, especially to the newest cohort of new customers that are typically late adopters and are most challenged to orientate themselves in a complicated product. And so what happens, those users flock to a new product. And then this is the product lifecycle that goes over and over and over again. And frankly, is the reason I believe why so many new products uh, disintermediate the older incumbent ones. Uh, and so it's really about you know, keeping products simple, um, which is effing complicated. Um, but when you think about simpler interfaces being disruptive interfaces, you know, a couple thoughts here. So first of all, it's just, in some ways there's like a war now between the underlying services for the enterprise and the surfaces that people use 
in the enterprise. I think a great example of this is, um, is in what's happening with HR tech right now, for example. There are some modern new HR enterprise technology companies that have come around that are basically you know, enabling you to take all the APIs of all the entrenched services you've used for HR over many years for all the different functions of HR, bring them all together under the hood, and then have this new surface to interact and manage them on a daily basis with in the way a consumer, because we're all, you know, we're all people, would want to kind of do their day-to-day -day work with all these various tools. And then why, by doing that, then you can actually find a wedge that you want to kind of get into uh, providing your own service and, you know, and, and then deepening the customer relationship and the stickiness from there. I think a great example of this, um, there are many, but one is ChartHop. They are enabling you to work with a number of different underlying APIs in the HR tech space, and their kind of wedge in is being the source of truth for your directory and kind of managing org charts and knowing like who reports to who and what organization everyone is in. And then before you know it, maybe you actually start to uh, use a few more of their kind of first party services as opposed to those underneath the surface. And so I do believe that the surfaces are becoming more important and in some ways, you know, threatening the providers of the services underneath. And that's, you know, just a reminder that the choices that we ultimately make in our day-to-day -day lives, both um, as consumers as well as workers within the enterprise are made at the, at the surface or the front end of everything. And um, I mean, look at Tableau, look at, there's so many other products right now that are, you know, in the surface business. And, uh, and that's a very, um, yeah, that's a very kind of d disruptive space to be, um, I believe. And another reason for that is just the, um, the tolerance or the lack thereof within the enterprise these days for a number of different things. There's less tolerance and willingness to learn how to use products. The expectation for elegance and, um, and simplicity is suddenly really high, whereas before you just kind of use the products you were told to use. Now, I think people are becoming more confident in the enterprise and vocalizing their displeasure with the user experience of the tools that they're given. I think this is being driven partly by just the higher bar we have in our personal lives, um, it's being driven by the confluence of some products that we use for both personal and work purposes. And also this bottoms up adoption motion in the enterprise that is sort of empowering people to say, hey, like, why do I have to use this clunky thing when, you know, so-and-so over there is, you know, using their corporate credit card and has a far superior, you know, surface to interact with on a daily basis. And I think it's a really exciting trend because this is, you know, uh, one of the themes of this presentation will be the power of design and empowering um, design to have a seat at the table, you know, for enterprise, uh, for enterprise products. I would go as far as to say that design is starting to commoditize tech. And um, I wrote an article a while back called The Interface Layer. And uh, this ob observation that a lot of industries are, play are playing this kind of slap a hand game where whatever interface at the top, you know, is at the top has the most power. And if you think about winning that interface war, it's really the design and the user experience that is most compelling. And I also think that on the sales side, again, I mean, if it's a bottoms up adoption model, people are voting with their, you know, their, their happiness um, in terms of whether they want to adopt and start using the product or not. And this top down mandated sell, you know, as we all know, that motion of sales is becoming 
you know, a little threatened by some of these, you know, more bottoms up approaches. And I think just design is an important role there. When I say it's commoditizing tech, what I mean by that is that there are just more and more kind of options of underlying APIs, but then also, you know, reuse of code. And, and I think that when you're, when you're building these applications, there's just so many now components that are readily available or open source on the market that you can cobble together to build the underlying kind of frameworks and, and, and services. And it's really starting to be the design that is you know, further differentiating uh, some of these products out there. I'll put it that way. So another, another adoption I'm uh, or observation I'm thinking about a lot these days is just how much the future of enterprise tools is this multiplayer default. And if you think about the types of, I mean, a few examples, and I'm using many examples I'm an investor in, but just because I know these companies well, I mean, Graphy, you know, they're building this data visualization product. And, uh, and by, you know, the first thing you do is you define who else is on your team and who should have access to the graphs you're making. And, and then suddenly, um, before you know it, other people who are normally not involved with the analytics or, you know, data analysis part of the organization are chiming in and building their own graphs and making comments and asking questions. And we've seen this in other products like Airtable, Globality for Procurement, um, one of our own uh, at Adobe XD, where it comes to like, design systems and prototype review and that sort of thing. These are modern products where you're actually, they're actually, in some cases, collaborative by default. You literally set up your, you know, your team before you even start to enter and, and use the, enter data and use the product. But they are built as multiplayer systems. And that means that stakeholders are super important. Um, it means that they're oftentimes web you know, web apps. And so I think there's a lot of questions that this starts to change the answer for as you're designing enterprise experiences. I mean, who are you designing for? I think that the age old way was really focusing on a specific function and nailing it and building that perfect application for that function at the expense of accommodating and being inclusive of a far you know, larger spectrum of potential users. And now you're not only designing for that siloed function, you're also saying, okay, what are, the, all, what are all the possible stakeholders that are going to interact with this product? What are the specific needs of each of those stakeholders, developers versus people in the C-suite versus customer service folks? If all these people jump into this product, do they all see the same thing by default? Do they see different things by default? What's the permissioning? Does the permissioning have to be defined up front or later on? Who are the admins who can manage positioning, uh, permissioning and how do you expand that group so that it's more flexible as a, as a system? And these are all the types of questions that, um, that this multiplayer mode for enterprise products raises. What are you selling? I mean, typically you're selling for these known needs of that siloed function that you're trying to serve with your product. And now it's really about all the other needs that the organization might have as they become stakeholders of this product. And, you know, what types of outputs do they want? If an executive logs into a system and sees the graphs, should they see fewer levers to, uh, to get confused by? And should they have an export functionality for PowerPoint, you know, because that's the need of that specific stakeholder um, of this multiplayer product? And also, how are you charging? I was having a conversation yesterday um, with a pretty you know, big investor in the enterprise space, and, um, and he was saying how people, in some cases, to the benefit of these enterprise companies are not doing the math 
on the cost of all of these viral spread, you know, users, the stakeholders that are coming in and suddenly starting to find a use case for the product that uh, maybe the company that signed up for this, you know, enterprise-wide license didn't anticipate. And so are you, are you only charging for the folks in the siloed function and then everyone else is sort of a free stakeholder user? Or are you charging different tiers? Or is everyone just a, you know, a paid customer as soon as they come in and start to actually enter or extract some value uh, into the system? And so it's actually changing the entire business model you know, of the rollouts of these products. And so I think that when you're building any enterprise product and you know, how do you make it multiplayer from the onset is, is going to be a theme um, in the product and design organizations of pretty much every enterprise product you can think of because you know, we're all stakeholders to some degree. So that's like kind of two thoughts on the simplicity and the, the edge of design or the, the disruption, if you will, of the interface itself and the role of collaboration first approaches to building enterprise products. And then the third um, area now I want to do a bit of a fun, um, somewhat polarizing deep dive with all of you in is around the tendencies of people with a bit of a lens on enterprise people or in the, in the people in their enterprise mode, I should say. Because all of us, you know, employees and consumers and everyone in between, we are all lazy, vain, and selfish in the first mile of our experience using a new product and service. And, uh, and that's not to say that you can't build a rapport with your customer, help them unearth a lot of the longer-term value of your product, and then have them commit to investing and making it theirs, of course. However, in this first mile of our experience using any product, and let me explain to you, let me explain to you why. So in the first 15 seconds, we are all lazy, right? We don't have time to, uh, to learn something, to go to read something. We don't want to be trained. And so we've all seen and went through these bad onboardings where there's just too many examples. Um, uh, instructional videos or mandatory training services that are, you know, thrown at um, new adopters of technology and enterprise. No one really wants to participate in this stuff. When people click through it and everyone has a little more confidence in themselves than they should uh, in terms of how intuitive something will be to them. You know, everyone thinks, oh, I'll figure this out. And they get it and they realize that they didn't or they, you know, even worse, think that they did and, uh, and they never use the product properly. And of course, more than one line of copy uh, typically doesn't get read. And, um, you know, there's all sorts of uh, heat maps of eye, eye movements on pages and stuff to back some of that up. And so... What did we learn from this? Well, first of all, it's always better to show uh, someone something rather than explain something. And so the use of tool tips and that sort of thing um, within product onboardings is super crucial, helping people get through that first mile. But even better than showing someone how to do something is doing it for them. And, um, and the most successful you know, products that I, that I see really get this right. You know, they land people in templates. They have smart selection as opposed to manual entry. They have really, really incredible presumptuous defaults. And they'll, you know, or, or they'll put in sort of chat UIs as a way of bringing someone through uh, an experience rather than having them, you know, have to start making choices in isolation um, and getting, uh, getting kind of anxious uh, about that process. I mean, one thing I would say is that my favorite saying in product design um, is uh, from my friend Dave Morin, and he likes to say that the devil is in the default. And that couldn't be more true. 
whatever we design or determine is the default experience, you know, for our customers ends up being the thing that they basically stay with forever. And, you know, and, and we just want to eliminate options at all costs, of course. So, so there's a lot of work and time that needs to be spent on this first mile in order to make sure that we capitalize and accommodate people's laziness. Um, and by the way, it is the ultimate irony that the last mile of a team's experience building the product is spent considering the first mile of a team's experience using the product or a customer's experience using the product. I mean, it's kind of amazing that the only part of all of our products that every customer or every prospective customer will experience is the top of the funnel, is that first mile. And of course, from there, it's just severe drop off. And yet, not until the end of our cycle, you know, building a product, in some cases over years, do we say, well, what should the default experience be? You know, and who's going to do the onboarding and the tour? And what should the copy be? And what should the splash page be? And what should that first day and third day and seven day email be? And what should we do when we start to see patterns of a customer you know, exiting the first mile experience? And how do we save them? And what's the, what's the graceful failure when we know that someone is struggling? Those questions, if they're asked, they're asked at the end. And, um, and I would argue that we should flip the model. You know, let's make sure that we get everyone at the top of the funnel through a very successful first mile experience. And then, you know, then let's really make sure that they find their quick path to unique value from the product. And let's not, you know, build something wonderful and lose everyone, you know, before they even get through the, uh, the metaphorical door. So we're not only lazy in the first 15 seconds, we are also vain. We are vain in the sense that whatever we're enduring or going through, uh, this better make us look good and quickly. And so here I bring up the topic of ego analytics. And this is one of my favorite kind of debates to have with the builders of products because everyone wants to think that their customers are above this. And we are, except not in the first mile, not in the 15, not in the first 15 seconds or the first, you know, number of use cases. We all want to know that we are loved and looking good. Um, and, uh, you know, I, there's a lot of examples of this over the course of my career as an investor working with teams and companies. I mean, the previous one was Periscope, which in the sake of time, I'll move on from. I mean, one other classic example we probably all see in our lives is when you open up Instagram and of course, instantly you see, you know, how many likes you have or hearts and how many new follows, which leads me to, uh, to an observation that when you look at the graphs of a lot of these companies with any form of vanity feedback or ego analytics, what you find is that people are more active in the product after they have posted something because they want to see what other people thought of the thing that they did. And if you look at a uh, engagement graph or a product like Instagram, you'll oftentimes see that there's this kind of level, you know, engagement, and then you post a new um, photo to your stream, and then suddenly you're going in all the time to see what people are saying about the thing that you posted, and then it kind of levels off again. And so the, uh, the dirty little secret in social consumer products is that they are as much about seeing who saw your content as they are about sharing and seeing others' content. And so... How do, we, how do we kind of bring this back to the enterprise and, um, and making great, sticky, useful, and beloved products in the enterprise? Well, one of the things we should do is we need to merchandise our customers' progress and success to our customer. Like they need to know that they are making progress. 
I did some research my second year at business school with a woman named Teresa Amabile, and she um, is sort of like a world-renowned researcher on creativity and business at Harvard. And she um, did this big study of people keeping diaries in the enterprise and uh, of big companies. Um, and she was studying creativity, but her big kind of takeaway from, from her research was that progress begets progress. When people feel like they're making progress, they're likely to make more progress. And so it is a bit of a chicken and egg thing, which then leads to the role of a leader in a team to merchandise the progress that his or her people are making to keep them motivated and going. And, uh, and of course, there's a whole other genre of discussion around what that means for startups and team building teams. But now we're talking about what it means for product utilization. If you can make sure that your customers feel like they're making progress, like they're successful, they're more likely to engage further in your product. They're also more likely to feel good about themselves and therefore like your product. Because if the product makes them feel good about themselves, that is a good thing. And so we need to also in the enterprise design products that help people get not only you know, feel good about themselves, but get credit for their work. And um, this is one of my uh, favorite examples. One team that I work with realized that if they could allow people in, their, in this enterprise dashboard of this you know, pretty traditional enterprise uh, you know, data-rich product for reporting, if they could allow their, their customers in the enterprise, the users, to print editable reports or export as Excel sheets, that, that was just like people loved you know, getting these editable reports so they could put their name at the top and basically essentially have this output for their bosses or to send around and you know, no one really, if you were just a receiver of this, no one knew that the, the tool that they used exported you know, 80, 90% of this. And then they just kind of put their own finishing personalization touches on it and then sent it around as you know, their report to their team. They looked so great. You know, they looked great to their peers, they looked great to their bosses. And this little feature you know, becomes really important. Now, traditionally in an enterprise product team, it's like, ah, oh, you know, we can just, keep, let's just have it an export as a PDF and people can just get the same data standardized, you know, and why spend time a, making it designed really well, making it editable, um, you know, all this stuff. But that stuff matters because you're feeding into the vanity, uh, you know, of the customer, especially in their early, you know, uh, experience using your product and doing so drives utilization. Finally, in this you know, first 15 seconds, we're also a bit selfish, right? We need to benefit very quickly from this without spending any time. Um, yes, this might be great for my team or for my organization or whatever else, but this does also kind of need to feed me really quickly because I've got a lot going on and, you know, and I have a lot of demands on me and family and everything else. And gosh, if they're gonna make me use this new tool, like better serve me fast. And we are all skeptical, right, of a long-term promise of, of a product. And so it's not enough to get us through that first mile. Um, we need something else, you know, to get us value now. And I mean, there's a few examples I've seen uh, over, you know, over my career, you know, one, you know, Pinterest, I remember Ben Silverman in the very early days, um, this was really about keeping your collection. And yes, the promise of a community and discovering other, you know, other content was always kind of part of the plan for him. But he was actually laser focused on the collector at first and making sure that they had the very best way to manage their own collection 
you know, in that selfish way of like, I don't think I want to discover other people's stuff right now, but I want it better. At the time, it was delicious and a few other apps online that people use to manage collections of their own stuff. And so he was really laser focused um, at first on this immediate utility for collectors and not necessarily this value proposition at the onset, you know, come and discover your interests. Wow, that's really cool, but it doesn't, doesn't really like serve my immediate need right now. So um, I think that the point of this, which is somewhat controversial, especially to my, uh, all my enterprise, enterprise leaders and friends listening to this, um, this talk, is that marketing and copy should be born with or in the product team because it's part of the product experience. A lot of new consumer um, and enterprise companies figure this out in their startup phase by necessity. Like it's all the same people and so everything seems perfectly integrated and thoughtful and the marketing and copy can, you know, change on a dime to accommodate some of these insights we're discussing here. But as we all know, in larger companies and with um, organizations set up for scale, it's hard to get marketing and copy, you know, in line with some of these product priorities um, and also to be able to iterate them to make sure that, you know, you're, you're appealing to the selfishness, you know, of, of your customer in real time. Um, and it changes, of course, over time. So, um, so that's something for all of us to think about as we're uh, you know, challenging the organizational model of, um, of some of these modern, modern enterprise SaaS experiences. And uh, thanks again for tuning in, tuning in. I'm Scott at Scott Belsky on Twitter if you want to keep in touch. Thanks again. Linode's Linux virtual machines offer industry-leading price performance. Don't believe us? Use our total cost of ownership calculator to receive a total cost breakdown technical recommendations, and see how much you can save compared to the hyperscalers. Visit linode.com slash saster to learn more.